The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, the New Testament book of 2 Peter and chapter 3. If you're using a cheer Bible, you can find our passage on page 1000. In 80. This morning we have the privilege of examining verses 8 through 15, which focus on the day of the Lord. This sermon really is an extension of the last several weeks in which we have looked at Christ's second advent or coming, and it also sets the stage for next week's sermon, where, Lord willing, Pastor Stephen will preach on Hebrews 10 19 through 25 on the implications of church membership in view of the day of the Lord. Hebrews 10.25 reads, Not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. There are innumerable benefits for us to have a proper understanding of Christ's return as it encourages us to remain steadfast in the present time. And as this passage will call us to, it also leads us to holiness. So if you have your Bible open to 2 Peter, we will read verses 8 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it, and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of the Lord and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will burn, will melt with heat. Based, but based on His promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in His sight at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would use this passage to bring unbelievers to repentance and your people toward a deeper experience of holiness. Pray that you would take your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us into your likeness. Speak to us now, Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. 300 years ago in 1719, Isaac Watts, one of the great hymn writers in church history, published a book of poems in which each poem was based on a psalm. One of the poems was an adaptation of Psalm 98. Watts interpreted this psalm as a celebration of Jesus' role as king both in the church and in the world. And he spoke of creation's joy when the Lord comes to rule and to judge. This poem was not originally meant with 
Christmas in mind, nor was it um, originally meant to be set to music. However, over a century later, the second half of this poem was slightly modified, and it was set to music. And it has given us one of our most loved Christmas carols, Joy to the World. I want to draw your attention to the third line in that hymn, which reads, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Implicit in that third line is the promise of a new creation. Where the curse of sin in Genesis 3 that transferred to all of humanity would be reversed in the second coming of Christ. That reversal, Watts notes, will extend as far as the curse is found. Which means this, all that was lost in the beginning will be regained and more following the day of the Lord. There's much connection between that hymn, particularly that third line, and what we see here in our passage in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 15. Before we approach these verses, though, I want to give you a bit of background on the book of 2 Peter. This is the second letter in which the Apostle Peter writes to Gentile Christians in Asia Minor. The purpose of this letter is largely to combat the false teaching that was circulating. Peter warns in chapter 2, verse 1, there will be false teachers among you. Again in chapter 3, verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Peter exhorts the readers toward the end of the letter, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall away from your own stable position. Second Peter informs us that these false teachers are blasphemers, wicked, and they're doubtful about the day of the Lord. The false teachers ask in chapter 3 verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter notes that these false teachers have, verse 5, deliberately overlooked God's powerful judgments since creation. They willfully ignore God's casting of the wicked angels into hell when they sin. God's judging the ancient world through the flood and Him condemning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And chapter 2 and chapter 3 tell us that the false teacher's denial and deliberate oversight of these judgments was caused by a desire to carry out their sinful flesh. They were overlooking things doctrinally so that they could live however they wanted to morally. So with this background in mind, I want us to ask and answer four questions concerning the day of the Lord. Four questions concerning the day of the Lord. The first is, what is the day of the Lord? One scholar helpfully defines the day of the Lord as, quote, God's decisive and final intervention in history to judge His enemies and to save His people. It's, a, it's an event referenced frequently in the prophets, and it possesses both historic and prospective elements. The day of the Lord in the prophets was historic, in that it records God's intervention in history, but it's also prospective in that it anticipates this great day of the Lord at the end of history when God will definitively and finally judge His enemies and vindicate the righteous. 
In First and Second Peter, Peter uses synonymous expressions to refer to the same consummating event. He calls it the day of God, the day of judgment, the day of visitation. The Apostle Paul defines the day in 1 Corinthians 1.8 as the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ calls it the last day. And if we're going to put the information from 1 and 2 Peter together, this is what the day of the Lord would look like. It's a day that is near. A day of destruction for the unrighteous. A day of salvation for the godly when God will gather all who have trusted in Him. It's a day that should lead the church to holy living. It's a day of vindication when God will carry out judgment and destroy evil. It's a day of fulfilled promise when Christ returns and the day of eternity dawns. It's a day when this present world will be destroyed and the new heavens and the new earth will come down. This is in part what the day of the Lord is. But what was going on in the context of 2 Peter is that these false teachers are asking the question, if the day of the Lord is in fact coming, why has it not come already? And this brings us to the second question. Why has the day of the Lord been delayed? Now what Peter does in verses 8-15 through is he answers the false teachers' end-time skepticism by emphasizing what the Lord is doing in His delay. Verse 8, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So in contrast to the false teachers who have deliberately overlooked God's powerful creation and destruction of the world, Peter's readers should not overlook the fact that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. In short, we should understand that God has a different perspective on time than finite humans have. In verse 8, Peter draws on and adapts Psalm 90 verse 4, where the psalmist differentiates the brevity of human life with the eternity of God. And here in 2 Peter 3, the contrast is between the impatience of human expectations and the eternity of God. Notice though in verse 8 that Peter uses an analogy. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Peter does not say that God's days equal a thousand years. Instead, he uses Psalm 90 to make the point that God is eternal, without beginning, without end. And as such, he relates to time differently than finite humans. As everlasting God, God is sovereign over time. He transcends time. He exists outside of time. God's being is not affected by time. Since God is everlasting, He sees time all at once. To God, the passing of a millennium is like the passing of a single day. Consequently, our evaluation of God's activity in the world should not be restricted or evaluated by our finite concepts of time. Furthermore, the New Testament does not prescribe a certain date or particular lapse of time before Christ's return. So the passing of time then does not put in question the trustworthiness of God's Word. So in considering the coming of the day of the Lord, we are not to forget that God is eternal and He relates to time different than finite humans. Peter continues in verse 9, The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay. No doubt the some there are all the false teachers. The promise in view 
in verse 9 is the promise of Christ's second coming. The false teachers believed that too much time had elapsed for the return of Christ to be credible. The delay of God's coming was a sign that God was inactive in the world. God created the world, but He wasn't going to intervene in the world again. But Peter answers the question, why has the day of the Lord been delayed with two positive answers in verse 9? First, God delays the day to bring the full number of His people to repentance. To bring the full number of His people to repentance. Look again at verse 9. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The you in verse 9 are Christians. It's the dear friends referenced seven times in 2 Peter, four times in chapter 3 alone. And this title, dear friends, depicts the church as recipients of God's saving affection. The believers in Christ Jesus are no longer enemies of God, but loved ones of God. They are the redeemed of God that have been plucked out of this pending destruction, saved from everlasting hell, and are destined for the new heavens and the new earth. The day of the Lord has not come because God is continuing to gather His elect and lead them to repentance. God will make sure to bring all those He has set His eternal love toward to Himself. And when He does, the end will arrive. This is why God has delayed His coming. But there's a second reason. Not only to bring the full number of His people to repentance, but also to express His patience with sinners. God's delay evidences God's patience with His people in particular, but also to humanity in general. The word patient in verse 9 is the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.20 to speak of God's patience in the days of Noah when He delayed the flood as Noah was building the ark. We see here in verse 9 that God's delay is intended and purposeful. Christ has not returned because God does not desire any to perish that is, enter eternal judgment, but for hell-bound sinners to repent and be spared God's wrath. He desires the unbelievers to come to a knowledge of Himself. Now, in order for us to properly understand verse 9, we need to know what it means to reach repentance. There's much confusion today around what it means to follow in Christ, and I think part of that is people not quite understanding the biblical definition of repentance. So allow me to explain for a few minutes. Repentance is a response to our sin that involves the whole person. Our entire being, our mind, our heart, our will. It's a knowledge of sin whereby the sinner sees himself as wicked before God. It's a sorrow over sin that causes a deep remorse over dishonoring God. It's a confession of sin that results in calling on the mercy of God. It is a breaking off of sin that causes reverence for the glory of God. It's a hatred of sin wrought by a vision of the holiness of God. Repentance also has a companion, namely faith in Christ. Where you see true repentance, you see subsequent and simultaneous faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're repenting over relying on themselves and instead are embracing all that Christ is for us in the gospel. 
The person who repents realizes that there is nothing one can do to be right with God apart from receiving His mercy in Christ. Realizing that Christ's life is needed for righteousness, His death needed for our pardon, and His resurrection needed for our acceptance. Repentance bears these marks and many more. But you show me someone who has not changed their view of or affection for or actions toward God and sin, and I will show you someone who does not understand repentance. When someone repents, their relationship with God and relationship to sin fundamentally and dynamically changes. And this verse is calling us to repent. To not postpone repentance. To not push off repentance, but to reach repentance. How wonderful and merciful God is that He desires this for humanity. He desires it for you. No matter who you are or what you've done, if you were to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you would be saved from hell. You must understand what it means to reach repentance. You should realize, verse 13, that there's coming this new heavens and the new earth where only righteousness dwells. There is no place in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth for unrighteous people. You are in need of a righteousness that is not your own. You should run to Christ and receive His righteousness by faith. You should repent today because verse 10 says, This day of the Lord will come like a thief. Peter's analogy of a coming thief recalls the teaching of Christ. We read it earlier. And it underscores that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. Notice the emphasis of verse 10. It's on the word will. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works done on it will be disclosed. Friends, we do not know many things that are going to happen in this world. We know this for sure. The day of the Lord is coming. The return of Christ is certain. And so how are you preparing for all of this? If you are outside of Christ, how will you endure this? It was not expected in Noah's day that the world would be destroyed by the flood. But that was not for want of warning because men could not They just couldn't conceive it possible. Maybe that's your approach this morning. You look at verses 10 and 12 and the destruction by fire and the melting and the burning and the cataclysmic upheaval that will be the day of the Lord and you say, surely something like that will not happen. But you have to embrace reality. It will happen. The day of the Lord will come just like the flood came. There's so much application that could be given on verses 8 and 9, but let me make just a couple of comments here. As the church, we are to mirror God's desire for all to come to repentance. We have been focusing in the month of December on the Lottieman Christmas offering and preaching sermons on Christ's second coming And so I just want to remind us again that if God desires all to come to repentance, we as God's people should desire that same thing. 
We should not only desire it, but we should pursue it through evangelism and missions. Until the day of the Lord comes, we should be active in calling people to repentance so that they may escape the wrath of God. We've looked at what the day of the Lord is. We've looked at why the day of the Lord has been delayed. And now let's look at the third question concerning the day of the Lord. What in part will happen when the day of the Lord arrives? I say in part there because there is no single New Testament passage, biblical passage, that captures all that will occur at the end of the age. It's just merely a slice of the pie for our understanding of what God will do at the end of history. But it's important nonetheless. You see in verses 10 and 12, three parallel occurrences in line with the day of the Lord. And each of these occurrences focus on the physical universe. Look with me at verse 10. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works done on it will be disclosed. And then verse 12. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt as they burn. It may be that Peter's reflecting on Isaiah 34, 4, which reads, All the stars in the sky will dissolve. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll and its stars will all wither. Now the main point of verses 10 and 12, lest we miss the forest for the trees, is that God will destroy the entire world. Amidst these being very difficult verses to interpret and commentators not quite knowing what to do with, here's what we can say generally for sure is going on here. God is going to destroy the entire universe. You see first in verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, with a loud roar. Greek writers use this term to express piercing rushing sounds, such as the hissing of a snake or the whistle of an arrow or a spear through the air, and in connection with the imagery of fire that we see in this passage, with a loud noise, most likely communicates the crackling of flames as the universe is undergoing blistering destruction. The heavens here have already been paired with the earth in verses 5 and 7 to speak of the entire cosmos, and I believe that's its meaning here. You also see the elements which probably refer to the basic building blocks of the earth. These will be burned and dissolved, melting with heat. And together, the heavens and the elements picture the totality of God's creation that will be destroyed by fire. Every aspect of the universe, from stars to galaxies to planets to atoms and molecules, all will pass away. Peter also states in verse 10, And the earth... And the works on it will be disclosed. When all is burned up, the work, the earth, and the works done on the earth will be disclosed. They will be laid bare. They will be exposed for what they are. Which means that everything God has created and done and everything that we have created and done will be laid open. It will be viewed by God in totality and in reality. Now what Peter will do in verses 11 and 14 is he's going to transition from the destruction of the world to how we should live in the world. Which brings us to our fourth and final question concerning the day of the Lord. How should we live in view of the coming day of the Lord? 
You see the word since and the word therefore in verses 11 and 14. And these are important markers that establish motivations for why we should live godly lives. Peter says this is what's going to happen to the universe. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be set on fire. Since that's going to happen, we should live godly lives. In light of that happening, this is how we should live. And Peter very helpfully and even simply gives us the bottom line of end time theology. That it should make us better Christians. The end times are not necessarily something that should cause anxiety or confusion, but something that should embolden us and empower us to be more committed to Christ, more in love with the Word of God, more holy in our living. Getting a glimpse for what happens in the end should make a definite difference in how we live today. In view of the coming day of God, Peter says in verse 11, What sort of people... Should you be in holy conduct and godliness? And how we think and how we feel and how we live in our interactions with other people and our relationship with God, how pure should we seek to live in our lives? That's Peter's argument. Even though we don't see all the obvious signs of the end of the world, we are to live in light of eternity. Recall that for the false teachers, their lack of understanding, their denial of what was happening at the end of the age, led to rampant sinfulness on their part. And Peter says the opposite is to be true for us as Christians. For Christians... The end times are to have a daily positive effect on our worship. They're to impact how we think about relationships, our jobs, our life, our relationship to the Word of God, the local church. We're to live lives of holy conduct and godliness. We are also, verse 12, to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Waiting is used three times in verses 12 through 14. And it means here to look forward to, to have an eager anticipation for, an expectation for what God is going to do at the end. And what's surprising here is that Peter says this is not only something that we should anticipate, it's something that we should hasten. We can hasten the arrival of the day of God. To hasten means to speed, quicken, or advance something. And Peter says here, by repenting, by living godly lives, we can help remove the cause of God's delay. Now Peter does not mean that we can hasten the day of God ultimately. In an absolute sense. Acts 1.7 teaches that the Father has fixed the times and seasons by His own authority. Jesus said in Mark 13.22 that the Father knows the hour of the Son's return, but from our human vantage point, we can hasten the day of God by fulfilling the preconditions of Christ's return. Namely, the preaching of the gospel to all nations. Praying God's kingdom to come. And in this passage, repenting of sins and living holy before God. And mysteriously and in ways that we don't altogether understand, God will cut the interim period short. Matthew 13.31, 
through our acts of obedience. We are to wait for, anticipate, long for the day of the Lord and hasten its coming. Verse 13 says that there's another way in in which we are to live in view of the coming day of Christ. And that is to be hopeful for the new heavens and the new earth. God is destroying the present world to establish a new world. Verse 13. But based on His promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter clarifies that this end time destruction does not mean the end of a physical universe. But instead, God will transform the universe in nature and quality. It will be new. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth was given in the book of Isaiah. Two separate occasions. Isaiah 65, 17 says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Pastor Nathan preached Revelation 21 last week in which Christ says, I am making everything new. Peter says here that the entire cosmos will be qualitatively transformed and it will be a place in which righteousness dwells. A place of perfect righteousness without any stain of sin, without any presence of evil. It will be It will be where the Lord of righteousness Himself dwells with us. And what a wonderful place that will be. We will have no sin. The world will have no sin. The Lord will be present before us. Following the destruction of this present world, there will be no more wickedness on the earth. Instead, the new world will be a holy city. The new Jerusalem. It will be where death is no more where God will wipe every tear from our eyes, where the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, where the, imp- where the perishable be- will be raised and transformed into imperishable. Everything that hinders our enjoyment of God will be removed, including our indwelling sin. The new heavens and the new earth will be where we can enjoy God and know God in capacities that we are simply incapable of now. Peter exhorts us in verse 14 to live righteously here because it is only righteousness that will survive in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in His sight at peace. In 1 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter calls the audience to be holy, for God is holy. Here, he says we should be holy as Christians because the new world will be holy. And in light of that, we are to make every effort, verse 14, to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. In other words, we're to prepare to give an account of our lives in the sight of God. We're to be diligent. We're to make every effort to be found holy before the Lord. We're to give meticulous attention toward our personal holiness. To be found here in verse 14 has a judicial sense. And it speaks of the court of law where a judgment is rendered. For Christians to be found without spot or blemish is in contrast to the false teachers who are categorized in chapter 2, verse 13, as blots and blemishes. 
Now for us to be found before the Lord without spot or blemish is for us not to be found morally perfect. We know that there is nothing we can do in the way we live to earn a right standing before God, to merit anything from God, but instead... This is calling us to an ever-increasing sanctification and purity. To a humility. To a greater commitment to God. We are to seek to be found holy. Verse 14 also says that we should be diligent as well to be found at peace. That is enjoying the relationship we have with God and the security of our right standing with God through faith in Christ. It's a state of confidence that we indeed will escape judgment because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Our transgressions have been forgiven. We have a clean conscience. There's no condemnation for us. And peace is likely mentioned here toward the end of the letter because the false teachers probably influenced the stability of some of the Christians that Peter's writing to. And Peter's wanting to make clear that these readers are at peace with God. That is the most important thing we can know, is are we right with God? Are we at peace with God? Can that be said of you today? It can only be said if you are trusting in Christ and relying on His person and work and resurrection, if you are hiding in Him, if you are repenting before Him, if your faith is in Him, if you love Him. And if that is you, you can be sure that you are at peace with God. If not, verse 13 implores you to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Verse 15 mirrors verse 9 in emphasizing God's patience with sinners. Peter makes clear here that the period between now and the day of the Lord is the only time in which salvation can be obtained. That period is the only time in which repentance is offered. Where faith in Christ ushers you into heaven. Where the gospel can be shared. This means that now is the day of salvation. For there's coming a time when the delay of God will be no more. The day of grace will expire. The patience of God will run out. As J.C. Ryle writes, Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's day. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are, or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. Don't put repentance off. Don't put humility off. Call on the name of the Lord today. Don't do so tomorrow. Don't do so in 2020. Do so today. Repent today. Humble yourself today. Peter then transitions to the Apostle Paul. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given him. It's always good when the Apostle Paul is on your side. Peter is stating before his audience here that his exposition of the day of the Lord is in line with the entire Bible's teaching on that day, including the Apostle Paul's. Peter is likely bringing Paul into the argument 
Because the false teachers are twisting his teachings to their destruction. If you look down at verse 16, he speaks about these things in all of his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction. It's likely that the false teachers were already doing so. Maybe that they latched on to a particular teaching of Paul, like salvation by grace alone, or freedom from the law. But regardless, Peter makes clear that Paul is united with the entire biblical witness concerning the day of the Lord. He says he is our beloved Paul. Divinely inspired, divinely authoritative, divinely wise, just like the apostle Peter writes. Friends, this passage calls us to many things. It calls us to repentance. To reach that point at the end of yourself when you have nothing but God and His mercy. It calls us to usher others to repent. To evangelize, to do missions. Because the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It calls us to live holy and godly lives, to put away our sin, to put away our immature thinking, to recommit ourselves to knowing the Scripture and living in light of it. It calls us to wait for and hasten the day of God's promise. It calls us to be confident that we are at peace with God. And not only to be confident, but to enjoy that peace. Nothing better can be experienced than knowing you are at peace with God. It also calls us to heed God's word, knowing that the Bible gives God's wisdom to us. All of this is in preparation for when the day of the Lord will finally arrive and God will bring the new heavens and the new earth down to us. God has always come down to us in the person of His Son, And in eternity when He will dwell with us face to face. The new heavens and the new earth will be the place in which righteousness dwells. Where God will be with us as our God and we with Him as His people. It will be a place in which pain will no longer exist. Sorrow will no longer be experienced. Regret, sadness, temptation... Sin will be no more. We ought to look forward to that day. For from coast to coast, shore to shore, sky to sky, and every square inch 